morning. We are excited to have you here this morning. Before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about our Christmas weekend services next weekend. Uh, and we would love for you and your family and friends and coworkers to be there. Um, and I think there's a responsibility we have within that to make that happen. It was interesting. There are statistics that show us just how prevalent people are in attending church on Christmas week. On average, 18% of Americans will attend church on a weekly basis. 18%. The number more than doubles during that Christmas week. 47% of Americans will attend church during the Christmas week. That's not just a, a random thing that happens, but it's because people are inviting and encouraging others to come. Right? It's interesting, 91% of Americans celebrate Christmas, and what they found is 2% of atheists, 9% of agnostics, 22% of people of other religions will even attend church during the Christmas week. So what do all these numbers tell us? What, what does this mean? Well, really, it's we have a responsibility to invite people, right, to invite family and friends and coworkers. But also it means that next weekend there will be people who will step foot through our doors who have never been here before. There may even be people stepping foot in our building who have never been to a church before. So we have an opportunity to care for them. We have an opportunity to show them what the love of Christ is like. We have an opportunity to break any negative stereotype they may have about church, about Christianity, or Christ. And what an opportunity we have. Right? And sometimes when we think about asking people, we, we kind of dream up like the worst case scenario. We say, well, what, what if they say no? What if, what if they say no, and what if it distances our relationship? What if it makes it awkward? What if, it, you know, what if they say no to me? Can I tell you, if that's the question you're worried about, you're not in the right frame of mind. The real question you should be worried about is what if they say yes? What if they say yes to coming to church, and all of a sudden you have a responsibility to them, to care for them, to encourage them, to walk with them, to be there when they're experiencing some drastic life change? Don't worry about what if they say no, they'll get over it. But what if they say yes? Will you be ready? So we'd encourage you, prayerfully consider who you would like to invite. And we have services Friday at 7, Saturday at 7, Sunday 5 and 7, and Monday 5 and 7. If you're thinking about inviting young families with young children, the 5 o'clock services have a Christmas celebration for the kids in their own room. So that it's just a great time to invite them and encourage them and let them know that you care for them, and make a plan about that. You know, for the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Echoes of Hope. Echoes of Hope was designed to look at these Old Testament prophecies, how they are fulfilled in the New Testament, and the effects that they had in the New Testament, but also what difference does it make for us today. So in your Bibles, if you would, today we're going to be looking at the book of Micah, chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 is where we're going to start here. Now we're going to start in the middle of an Old Testament book. So I want to give a little bit, of just a little bit of background information to kind of help us understand what we're really reading. First of all, who is Micah? Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets. His name means who is like the eternal. He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And we look through, as we study these prophecies, we see that throughout Scripture, there are over 300 different prophecies about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection found in the Old Testament. And prophecies, when you study them in the Old Testament, you see they are very interesting. 
Because as you try and line them up, the only real explanation in most of these, as you look at the intricacies and the details of these prophecies, is the only real explanation is God. It could only have been God who has orchestrated these prophecies to come true. For these events to, to follow, for these locations to be true, for these people to be involved, it doesn't make sense except for God. And so as we're studying these prophecies this morning, I would encourage you to kind of think about what it means today. And in fact, specifically in Micah, we're going to read through some of these warnings. In Micah, there are a lot of warnings about kind of lifestyles and sins and just different ways that people of these areas were living. And so he begins to warn them throughout the book of Micah. He provides these different warnings. I think it's important for us that whenever we see warnings in Scripture, to listen to those warnings. Because so often, it is people who believe those warnings are not for me. I'm beyond that. I'm past that. I don't need that. That later you find yourself dealing with this. So that when you hear warnings in Scripture, it's of great value to listen to it for your own life. So as we're studying through Micah, we see that there is just different lifestyles being lived. And Micah begins to warn them about the, these selfish lifestyles that they were living, about the way they were doing it, and then the judgment that would soon come to that. In fact, in Micah chapter 2, it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. He would continually warn them about their dishonest practices, about the way the wealthy would treat the poor, about the idolatry that they would have in their lives. He would continually warn them about these things. But not only was it just warnings, it was also warnings associated with judgments that would come if you do not change your ways. Micah's message was both to Israel and Judah, primarily to the two respective capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. Really three main ideas found within Micah. The sins, their destruction, and then their restoration. So as we study Micah this morning, we'll see it, it's full of warnings, it's full of judgments, but there is a message of hope in the midst of those judgments. So we'll be in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Throughout Micah, what we see is the, these warnings are followed by judgments, and some of the judgments are very specific and, and, and very rough. He talks about the siege that is going to happen to them, how they'll be overthrown by Assyria, be taken captive, and put into exile. Certainly, that is some alarming news to hear. That if you are the recipient of that news, that kind of breaks your heart. So we're going to be talking about the experience of captivity, a life of exile. 
what happens when, when you just feel like you're stuck. So not only do they feel that captivity was coming, there's also a sense of it that they felt captive to their sin. Right? They couldn't remove sin from their lives. They couldn't get rid of the sin. They felt stuck to the sin. They felt stuck to being hopeless. Felt like they had no value or purpose or just worth in life. And so we, we see these, this warning against people who are captive to sin, where sin is their motivator. Sin is their foundation. Sin is their reason for doing what they do. And there is a danger in that. There is a danger when, when sin has that role in your life. But oftentimes, it's true in this passage, and even true in our lives today, is sometimes when we're stuck sinning, we try to make things better sinfully. Right? We try to sinfully make things better when we're stuck in sin. We, we see that throughout Micah. We see that in our own lives. That when we get stuck, we think the only way out is if kind of sin differently. It reminded me of the story that I heard about these two boys. These two boys, it was about Christmas time, about 30 days before Christmas. Their great aunt had come into town. She wouldn't be there for Christmas, so she had brought gifts that day. She brought gifts for these two boys, and she handed it to them and said, go put them under the tree. So they, they took these gifts, and as any child does, they tried to identify what is in this gift. But this gift was not like other gifts. The shape was different. The weight was different. It felt almost weightless. And so they're trying to you know, carry it a little bit, maybe shake it a little bit, smell it just to make sure. You're trying to figure, what is in this gift? So they put it down under the tree, but they don't leave the tree. They just stand there and they look at it. They think to themselves, what, what, have, what have we just been given? And they kind of look at each other and they you know, we could probably figure out what we've just been given. And so they kind of talk about, you know, if we just very, very carefully unwrap this gift, maybe just peek inside just so we know what's in here. Some of you have been there before. I know I can tell by the look on your faces. You've, you've done this. It's all right. And so they kind of devise this plan of, of how they're going to do this. So they very carefully open it up, peek inside, and all they can see is tissue paper. So they kind of peel back the tissue paper, and inside is a $20 bill. So then they get excited. They do it to the other gift. So now they each have $20 inside their gift in their hands. Now, in the mind of a nine-year-old, the thought is, I could have $20 now or $20 later. I'll take $20 now. And so they say, you know, what we could do is we could take the gifts, wrap them back up, take the $20 with us, and then on Christmas, just pretend it was something else. Their great aunt wasn't going to be there anyways. Nobody else knew. So they thought they had kind of crafted this master plan. So later, their mom takes them to the store, and they begin to put these items into the cart. And their mom says to them, hey, well, we can't get all this stuff. You, you guys don't have any money. Now, a nine-year-old bank account is usually pretty well known by the parents. Right? It's usually money you've given them or money they found in the couch cushion. Right? So when they say, she says, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have the money. The boys look and say, oh, we each have $20. As a parent, that raises a few questions. Right? You have some questions about where that money came from. And so she asks them, where did you each get $20? Now, in their master plan, 
they had forgot to identify where they were actually going to get their $20. So they kind of look at each other, think about it, and remember what we said, right? Sometimes when you're stuck in sin, you try to fix it by sinning. So they kind of look at each other. Their thought was, what, what do we do in this scenario? Like, and one of them had the idea, said, Mom, we've each found $20 in the bathroom here at the store. Thinking he had, like, nailed it. Problem solved. The mom takes each of their $20 and says, we have to take this to the service desk and find the rightful owners. And so now you're stuck in the situation of, like, you're stuck in sin. You tried to sin to make it better. Do you try to sin again to make it better? Or, you know, it's just going to get worse, really. There's no real win in the situation. And that's what we see in Micah. Right? They're, they're stuck in sin. They're captive to sin. And they can't break this sin cycle. And that's where we see this hope come from. Right? We, we see that in verse 2, we see just a, a glimmer of hope for them. Uh, it talks about a ruler from Bethlehem. Now, wh- what is so significant about Bethlehem? Population of 27,000 people. Nothing really glamorous about the city. Certainly over time, there have been some important historical events there. David was born there, was later crowned king there. The book of Ruth is set there. But nothing in the city really of significance. Now, the, the city, if you look at its name, is actually named after a goddess, Bethlehem which means house of bread, which was called that because Bethlehem was a kind of a grain-producing region. Nothing really glamorous about it. It was just the city that was chosen. And so, but this location of the birth of Christ is just kind of the beginning of the attitude of the life of Christ. A few weeks ago, if you were here, we, we read through the book of Philippians chapter 2, and we talked about this. And I want to read it just one more time, just in case you miss it. But this is going to paint the picture. Bethlehem is just the mere location of the birth of Christ, but it sets the attitude for the life of Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the attitude of the birth of Christ should be that for the same believer. The, same, the believer should have the same attitude of obedience and service to God. The location is just a mere example of that. And so through verse 2, we see that the people are provided a, a glimmer of hope. 
a glimmer of hope of what could be. There is a, a perfect ruler predicted. I don't know if you've ever been in your life, you, you've seen a glimmer of hope in your life. Where something just kind of motivates you to keep going. To encourage you to do what needs to be done. But sometimes that, that glimmer of hope can be enough just, just to keep going. I know for me and my family, a while ago, we went hiking. Now, let me preface this by telling you, we went hiking. We are not hikers. I just feel that's important in the story, as you'll soon find out. So we, we went to a local woods, and we thought, you know, we'll, we'll walk around. We'll just have a fun family day, get to do some fun things together. And so we're walking through the woods. The kids are having a great time. They're, they're seeing wildlife. They're getting to kind of navigate which way we go in the woods. We're playing in creeks and puddles and, you know, just experiencing all these great things. And we, we learned a valuable parenting lesson that day that I would like to share with you. The lesson would be this. Your time of being done needs to equate to your t kid's time of being done. So we were there, and we were having a great time, and all of a sudden, the kids were done. They had had enough of what we were doing. They had enough hiking, had enough walking, playing, whatever it was. They were ready to be done. The problem is we are in the middle of the woods, so we can't be done. We have to return. The other problem is that we realize is that we had let the kids kind of navigate the trails, pick out which way we we're going to go, just kind of a fun family adventure. That was a mistake. It's a big mistake. Because as we're trying to find our way back, we realize we have no idea where to go. And it's one of those helpless feelings as you start walking and walking, and you don't know if you're walking in the right direction. You don't know if you're getting closer to your destination or actually walking farther away from your destination. It's kind of a weird feeling. And so we started walking and walking and walking and walking. At this point, we've walked farther than we had initially, but we've not seen anything that looks familiar. So we kept walking. And we came to another realization. The kids were done. They were done walking. So now my wife and I are carrying all of our kids, and we're walking and walking and just looking for something that looks familiar. And so here we are in the middle of the woods walking around trying to find where we are. And finally, we stumble upon this building, and we know we parked next to a building, and we thought, great, we've done it. We've made it. But as we got closer to the building, we realized it's not the same building. For whatever reason, there is another random building in the middle of the woods. And so now, we're stuck. And so now I begin to try and devise these strategies of how I could save my family. Now, in telling you this now, I realize it wasn't such a good idea to bring up at the time. But in the moment, I thought it was a good idea. I told my wife, I said, listen, what if I leave you and the kids here? I run ahead. I would be quicker this way. I will find a way out, and then I will run back to you. Because clearly my navigation skills were so strong that this is going to work. I was quickly informed it was not a good idea. And so we keep walking again, and we're walking and walking and walking. And I, eventually I came to the conclusion, I came like just this, in my mind, I realized, you know what? We're going to be woods people. It's going to be the life of my family. We'll, we'll build a small house out of the little sticks. We'll eat bugs and insects. Like 30 years later, we'll get a special, like A&E, we'll be fine. We're going to get woods. We'll be woods people. And we just, we, we felt stuck, right? The kids are like beyond upset, beyond tired, beyond fatigued. 
my wife and I feel the same way. And we just kind of keep walking, not knowing if we're even going in the right direction. And eventually, eventually we see the roof of the right building. And I can still just remember this sense of like, oh, thank goodness. Like, we're going to be okay. And it gave us the motivation. We weren't carrying kids. We're running. We're running to this building where we had parked our car. And that was the glimmer of hope that we needed to keep going. Now, I, I tell you that story not to trivialize whatever you may be going through, but to let you know that there is hope available. Right? And even in this passage here, as you look back at verse 2, you see that there are a glimmer of hopes being given to the people. Right? Look at verse 2 again. Listen to some of the words that are given to the people. It's but you, O Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And if you go down to verse 5, it says, And he shall be their peace. Right? Scripture is providing glimmers of hope for these people. But Scripture can provide glimmers of hope for us. And we see that in here. And later we see this prophecy, this glimmer of hope confirmed in the book of Matthew. So if you were, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We see this prophecy confirmed. This, this glimmer of hope. In verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now here it is. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We see the prophecy confirmed in real life hundreds of years later. And the only real explanation is but God. So often we can read through Scripture and we will see names of God or attributes of God or characteristics of God and just kind of check them off that we agree with them, but not really fully think with what they mean. We see words in this passage like ruler and shepherd. And to really understand what it means for the good shepherd, you have to kind of understand sheep. And really, honestly, the foolishness of sheep. Right, if you think about sheep, they have no real defense mechanism for the most part. Probably the only animal in the history of animals to have to hire a caretaker and a bodyguard. Right, and if you think about like, what they're good for, like you know, making sweaters, uh, like helping people go to sleep, like a mediocre soup maybe. Right, you, you look at the foolishness of sheep, you're like, okay, like this sheep, really what's the point here? But then, then you come to the realization, understand that throughout Scripture, we are constantly compared to sheep. Right? It's throughout Scripture, we see these verses that talk about the connection between us and sheep. Matthew 9, 36. 
We are like sheep without a shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so when you understand the foolishness of sheep, then it helps you to understand what it means that he is the good shepherd and how he cares for his sheep. In John chapter 10, it talks about what it means to be the good shepherd. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. We see the difference between the good shepherd and something that's not a shepherd. So often in our life, we look for that good shepherd. We look to be shepherded by something that's not actually a shepherd. We want to feel cared for. We want to feel led. We want to feel valued. We want to feel good. And so we look for those feelings to be met by things that are not shepherds. And there's a danger in that. And we find ourselves doing things that don't equate to all of those things. You do something, maybe it feels good. It doesn't add any real value to your life. But it feels good. You do something, maybe, maybe it makes you feel valued. It doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel like you have a purpose. Right? When we look to be shepherded by something that's not a shepherd, it doesn't end well. So for us to fully understand what the good shepherd means, right, that we are really, what we're craving, what we're searching for is peace. Right? We want to have that peace about life. And our, our present reality is that a spiritual reign and true peace in the midst of exile. You can imagine that if you were the people who are the recipients of the message of Micah, that you are searching for something, for someone to save you. Right? If, if your destination, if your journey leads you to captivity, leads you to exile, you would want to be saved. You would want some sort of peace about that situation. But we have to understand really what peace is. We have kind of distorted view of peace. We often think, you know, if I'm fine, everybody's fine, life's fine, nothing bad has happened, then I can have peace about that. But that's not really what peace is. Really what we see is that the dictionary definition of peace is freedom from disturbances. Freedom from disturbances. Now understand the difference. It's not ceasing the disturbances. It's the freedom from the disturbances, or the obstacles, or the trials, or whatever word fits for you to put in there. It's not that they cease to exist in our life, it's that we have a freedom from them in our life. And so we look at this and think, well, how, how is that possible? How can you have peace in your life, in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these difficulties? How can you have peace about these things? I want to teach you an equation to kind of help you navigate that, that question. The equation goes like this. Hope in Christ plus trust in Christ 
equals peace in Christ. Now understand that if you change one of the variables in that equation, it changes the outcome. So if your hope is in something else and not in Christ, plus trust in Christ, it will not equal peace in Christ. If your hope is in Christ but you're trusting in something else, it will not equal peace in Christ. Only hope in Christ plus trust in Christ will equal peace in Christ. So how, how, do these hope, how does hope and peace kind of correlate together? It's understanding who God is in a personal way. Understanding that, that God is living and active and working in your life. Understanding that God is all-knowing, that God is everywhere, that God is just, he is sufficient. Having the peace and knowledge of that and believing that will give you hope in your life. It will not cease the trials. It will not cease the disturbances, but it can give you freedom from those. You know, there's an old story about a king who had requested a a painting contest. And within this painting contest, he said, I want you to paint me a picture of peace. And so it came down to the final two paintings. The first painting was this very surreal lake setting, beautiful sun and clouds and lake. But the second one was this, this mountainous setting, rain and lightning, big waterfall. But in the midst of that was this mother bird sitting on a little bush on a nest taking care of her eggs. And the king looked at it and says, you know, this to me is an example of peace. Because true peace on earth this is going to have disturbances. It's going to have those trials. It's going to have those difficulties. So, so this is a picture of peace to me. That in the midst of everything else, you can find peace. And so finally, as, as we look at this then, we understand now that peace is attainable through these difficult times. But also, that the future promise is that there will be a physical reign and continuous peace. I know that Christmas can bring up a variety of emotions and memories and feelings for people. For some, it may be the idea that you, know, you have these memories these great memories of what once was that is no longer available. For some, it's, it's, it's gathering of people that you'd rather not gather with. We, we create the, these stresses and the, these comparison things where we look at how some people can celebrate Christmas and you wish you could kind of support your family in a way that you could celebrate Christmas like that. And, and it becomes difficult. And we build up all the, these different stresses in our life. And it becomes just, just tough to navigate. The, the, these stresses and trials, you, you feel hopeless, feel worthless, feel like you have no purpose, you feel like you have no value. And you just have these, this overwhelming sense that you don't belong. Can I tell you, there is a day coming in which the pain will be no more. In which the struggles will not be there. In which that, that, that feeling of worthlessness 
will no longer exist. That feeling as if, as if you don't matter will no longer be there, and you will be able to celebrate in heaven in eternity. And I pray that today, that if you're not ready to do that, that you will soon submit your life to Christ so that you can experience that in eternity. Doing it now will not cease the trials now, but it will give you peace. But then you will also, you're promised that continuous peace, that everlasting peace in your life. And as we, we look at this and we think about this, we understand the value of that. We know it's difficult. Life can be hard. There can be monumentous disasters in life sometimes. Just difficult things that happen. And so can I encourage you today to seek true peace, true comfort, because everything else that you look for will not satisfy, will not do the job. Things that you turn to to shepherd will not shepherd you. So whatever you may be going through, whatever you may be walking through, I encourage you to seek real peace about it. To put your hope in Christ, your trust in Christ, and to be honest about it. Knowing that it's not easy, but the reward will far outweigh the risk. Would you stand with me as we close and read Psalm 146 and pray together? In Psalm 146, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for who you are. Lord, we are thankful that you are who you say you are. We are thankful that, that scripture confirms and identifies who you are to us. Lord, we pray that today that people will come to know you as their peace, come to know you as their comforter, as their counselor. Lord, we pray that whatever people are walking through right now, that they can find comfort in you and knowing who you are and what you've done and knowing that you care for them, that you love them, that you are a God who is active and living. Lord, let that provide comfort to those who need comforting. Lord, let those who are in seek of counsel be counseled. Let those who are seeking peace in their lives to have that peace, knowing that you are who you are. Lord, we pray for those who are not yet there. 
who have not submitted their lives to you. We pray that this day they will do that, that we can celebrate in eternity. Submit our lives to you, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the King of our hearts. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this last song together.